Marin, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, I'm really excited to dive into what you're working on. You are literally building the future of search. So uh, I want to just like, just tell, tell me what that even means. Like, what, what are you building? All right. So the, thank you. Thank you, Brian, so much for having me. Um, right. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of OmniSearch. And what we basically do is we're building, you know, like you said, the future of search. We also like to grandly call it the search for everything. And what this essentially means is you have a search product uh, kind of if you're trying to, you know, compare it to something that's already in, a mar in, in the market, it's not like Google or these other B2C search tools. It would be more like an Algolia or an Elastic or something like this. But what the differentiating factor is, is that we are able to index and search way, way, way more than just text and make it easily work out of the box. So, you know, audio and video materials, docs, images, presentations, plain text, all this you can just as a customer ingest into OmniSearch. We'll parse it, we'll extract all the relevant information, and then you can search either through a web UI or by integrating it into your own sites or your own experiences. And so, you know, just to give you a little bit of an illustration, and I, I realize I might be, you know, <laughs> going a little bit uh, um, vehemently now, but, um, you know, just to give you a quick illustration of what this looks like, imagine you, you're indexing a large database of videos. And so, you know, you might be interested in, you know, where is a quote, where has a quote been uttered, you know, and then find that, find those exact moments, consume that little piece of information and do other more productive stuff. Um, or you might be interested in images uh, in, you know, objects or persons or, you know, st stuff of this, of this sort. So it's really a very, very broad range of queries and query types that we support out of the box. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and that's an interesting uh, example there. So like the quote being uttered, uh, I, I I have to imagine just kind of just reading your website and talking to you previously that you're probably using a lot of uh, machine learning in your your uh, uh, search algorithms. And uh, like, so if you're searching for a quote, I mean, do you have to like put it in exactly how it's said? Or is there some kind of like, uh, you know, being in the general neighborhood of what the quote is, you're kind of getting like the context, would it still be able to find that quote amongst maybe like petabytes of video files? Right. Okay. So this is this is actually a, a really, really good question. Cause I think, you know, let, let's stick to the audio parts because that was, you know, one of the or probably like the earliest thing that we ever did. So Right now, yeah, you'll what you'll basically do is you'll convert everything to textual representations and then work on those. So we'll what we'll generally have is you know a fair bit of semantic tolerance, you know, typo tolerance, synonyms, and so forth. It's not, I would say, you know, as it can't handle it as fuzzily as you would with you know regular vector search. But then again, with those kinds of approaches, you can't pinpoint the results as exactly as you can with ours. So it's, you know, I would say it has a fair bit of, you know, semantic fault tolerance, typo tolerance and so forth, but it isn't necessarily as fuzzy as you would get in some other systems. Okay. Are, are you guys the only people that you know of working on this or obviously like Algolio and Elast Elasticsearch you mentioned, I mean, they're, they're doing some of this kind of stuff, but uh, is there other companies working on this? Or are you guys first in the market? I would say like we're we're first in the market when it comes to the sheer, you know, volume of different things that we cover. So, you know, the, the one of the cool things about us is that, you know, we and this is kind of, you know, one, one of our main value props that we focus on in the pitch. Like if you're a customer that's looking at search vendors, we are 
probably like the only one I would say, and not, not to get too cocky about it, that can solve all your search needs. So if you have like a specialized, I don't know, video search tool, like a 12 or, or, or something like this, it can still be fairly, you know, complex to intertwine that with the other search solutions you're using. You still might need one for text, like an Algolia or an Elastic or something like this. Whereas with us, you just get, you know, everything inside one system, one vendor. And you also, this is really cool because you get a holistic view of your entire database. So you don't need to, you know, deal with interleaving these results, displaying these results differently, um, pagination, ranking, and so forth. So, you know, with us, I would say we're the, the first to market that just handles all of this stuff neatly. Yeah. And so like if I'm embedding your product, let's say in an application and I have, you know, all these different types of files, PDFs, uh, PowerPoints, video, audio, you know, relational database, JSON, you know, document like MongoDB type database, uh, whatever else. Like maybe I have some weird like, you know, application specific file types as well. Uh and you can go search all that now like let's say it's a video let's say like the results have you know a combination of videos and some pdfs and some powerpoints do you respond like does your search product respond to the query like on the programmatic side like an api response have like the document like the the file that the specific file and like the specific page or like the yeah. like the yeah, like basically basically you get a you get a really good level of granularity so what you'll get you, like you said so api would be kind of the more the most prevalent way that people use it um basically cuz cuz the main thing that we're targeting is you know people integrating us into their sites into their platforms into their apps whatever um and so basically the api is the core way in which you both ingest data and then perform the search queries so what you'll essentially end up getting is you know a json response that has the documents you know with pages bounding boxes timestamps whatever like there is you know kind of a position concept of a position there that is dependent on the file. That's what I was trying to get to, like, like how yeah, so you, you kind of do that uh, position of where the where the yeah. result is found. Yeah, exactly. It's easy on a web page because Google can do that thing where they just sort of like jump you to that part of the page. I, I, they have yes. like that URL fragment thing, the, the hash symbol, and then like the quoted text, and you can like jump right to that part of the page and it's highlighted in yellow. But uh, yeah, like when you have all these different types of documents, like that has to be probably pretty complex to deal with this like concept of position because the definition of position is very different depending on the type of file. Very different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So what's uh like tell me about like, you know, I I was looking at your LinkedIn. What you started at what AWS? Uh yeah. okay. So tell me like yeah, actually, what were you I doing? Was, I was at uh, I was at MemSQL or nowadays single store before that and then an internet Facebook before that. But yeah, okay. AWS was kind of like the, the fundamental thing that I did prior to doing startups. Yeah, you were there the longest I saw, like almost three years at AWS. Yeah, so what uh, what do you work on at AWS? It says S three on your LinkedIn. Oh yes, S three. Uh, that's a, that's exactly right. So actually, you know, when I was interviewing for Amazon, Amazon is kind of different than the other, at least from my understanding, than the other fangs or magmas, whatever whatever they're called nowadays. I don't even know, um, but in that it allows you to select a team even when you're doing interviews. 
So not just, you know, you, you just randomly inter interview for the whole company, you get thrown into a pool and then people either, either draft you or you get randomly assigned to a team. So with Amazon, it's, it's pretty different because you do get to interview for a team. And so my thinking at that point in time was, you know, AWS is, is exciting. Cloud is exciting. I'm, you know, very interested in distributed systems. I think I do have something of a knack for it. So, you know, I, I feel like I might just, you know, apply for an AWS job on a team that, you know, checks all those boxes. And so I got to an, to S3 as really one of the, the coolest one that I could find at that point. And um, essentially, yeah, applied for a job there, got in. And basically my team over there was in charge of, you know, making sure that, not to go into too many details because, you know, NDAs and all that beautiful stuff, but um making sure that out of the like three core parts of S3, that the trickiest one for scaling actually scaled so that it didn't fall over when you have like these trillions of objects and millions of requests per second, whatever. So basically it was a very cool team, a very senior team and yeah, making sure like the, the fact that S3 hasn't fallen over is, is very nice. So we are, we're, we're very proud of that. So uh, a couple of questions, a couple of threads I want to go on this. Yes, uh, first, um, was Shell Kaplan the original uh, architect of AWS and S3 or who, who originally architected S3? Well, Shell Kaplan, I think, was probably out before AWS happened. Because I, I think like Shell Kaplan it was there at the very beginning of Amazon, but not of AWS since AWS would have been about like 12 years after Amazon.com. Right. So I think that there is you don't have like one specific guy who built S3. There's there's a couple of guys. There is Alan Vermeulen, who was um, who even became the CTO of Amazon at one point. There's Sorensen. There, there's a there's a bunch of these guys. And I'm sure if I, you know, started checking the names, then people would feel left out that were there at the very beginnings. But there, there was a bunch of dudes that are currently at like either senior principal or more often like distinguished engineer VP levels. Nice. And then uh, we were talking a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I mean, S3 launched in what, 2006, I think. I think so. Uh, and you were telling me that some of the underlying architecture of S3 that was built in 2006 is still largely in place today. Oh, yeah. Like I think that basically when, when I was there and again, you know, I'm very limited on the specifics that I can go into, but Yes, it it aged very gracefully. That there were things that you know needed to be changed, but you know if you look under, if you looked at what it looked like when I joined, there was still a lot of you know a lot of things that were overlapping with what you actually had in the very early days. Just for the listeners too, uh, we were talking about Shell Kaplan a moment ago. Uh, if you're not familiar with who Shell Kaplan is, obviously you are, uh, Marin. But for the listeners who may not be, Shell Kaplan was the first hire by Jeff Bezos. He was literally employee number one uh, at Amazon, uh, and he uh, he was a software developer. And there's like a famous job posting by Jeff Bezos, like in the early days when it was still in the garage. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but it was something along the lines of, you know, uh, must be able to uh, build complex applications in roughly one third the time that any competent engineer thinks is possible. 
<laughs> I I like the description. And Shell obviously was because like the, the 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 initial team over there was pretty hardcore. Like they did a lot of lists, believe it or not. So it was there is, I don't know if you remember Steve Yeager's or am I saying that right? Blogs. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He, going into some of the early war stories at Amazon because he was first at Amazon then at Google so he saw all of these things up front um yeah so definitely a very hardcore team in the very early days as was the team that built built AWS that's also a very hardcore team yeah that's cool that's cool what was it like working at AWS I guess you were kind of there like you know in well into the maturity of of AWS and Amazon as a whole I mean it was already like you know, Fortune 10 probably at that point and just massive Goliath. But like, what, what's it like working there? So I would say, you know, that there is everything, like every job will have its, you know, pros and cons. I would say that what is what is good there, and that's kind of an extreme case of what you'll sometimes see in big tech is you really get to, to you know, witness a masterclass of like, you know, distributed systems, scalability, um, all these, you know, important concepts that you, you know, back when we were taking distributed systems in college, you know, this, the examples there would have been like, I don't know, simple client server architectures or, you know, something that at most had a couple of machines. Then you go to S3 and that's like hundreds of thousands of machines. So, you know, you definitely like your intuitions about this, your your ways of reasoning about systems, they change very fundamentally in, in ways that you couldn't do in smaller companies. So, you know, the, the deep dives, the ability to specialize in a really important topic and go really deeply into it. That was the that was the best part. And I really love the people that I worked with. You know, the senior engineers on my team were phenomenal. The rest of the guys were phenomenal. So really great over there. Um, the downside of S3, like you alluded to this, you know, it's it's a very mature product, which means there's no, you know, cowboyish approach. There is no um, major, you know, incentive, I would even say, to, to ship it super fast. Rather, it's like, don't break first order of business, don't break things. <laughs> so <laughs> that can be a little bit frustrating when you're, you're an, you know, young, eager beaver and want to ship things, get things into production as soon as you can. And then it's like, ah, oh, but did you think of this angle? And then you got to think about that angle. So it, it, it helps with discipline, but maybe it's not the most exciting part. I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. I saw like, you know, Facebook used to have that term, uh, you know, move fast and break things. Mm -hmm. uh, that might have been, you know, still in play around the time you were there. That uh, uh, that that died. Yeah, I, I've seen. They, I've seen they like retired the, that one. They retired that one. Even Facebook. I guess by 2013, that was probably what, like 2004, 2008. They were like moving That's, fast. No, so 2000, 2013, I think it was still there, but they retired it recently. Yeah. So the new one I've seen uh, is uh, move fast and ship working software. <laughs> which doesn't really have the same ring to it it looks a bit sterilized um but 
okay, you'd let the, the appropriate for a Fortune 10 company, yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, I can see the natural progression now, like talking, you know, talking through like your time at S3 and Amazon, uh, AWS specifically, and then now what you're doing with Omni Search, I can see like this natural progression from like what you were working on with S3 and like the types of like this S3 is like, you know, uh, for the listeners, it's like storage containers for developers to put data into. So you can put like basically any type of data, like any type of files or you know, you can like host websites, you can host HTML, you can like point things at S3 and use it for storing like PDFs or audio or video files or whatever. Like you can do a lot of stuff with S3, but it's basically like this kind of catch-all bucket that you can put things in uh, on the AWS ecosystem. And, uh, you know, kind of like I could see how OmniSearch is kind of, you know, taking that concept to the next level with uh, making it super indexable and searchable. Like I think S3 doesn't really have like an indexable, I guess you can put Elasticsearch on it probably, right? I think you you have certain of these things that you can that you can do on top of S3. So like there's even the project called S3 Select, you know, there there's, there's Athena. So th there's ways to mine the data that's on S3 to search the data that's on S3, but, not not if it's not well structured data i think at least not to my knowledge so like you can you can do searches on csvs you can do searches on maybe jsons probably just or parquet files or you know other other types of files that are like very neatly structured so you can do that on s3 probably even natively at least that was the case even when i was there but you can't do much with, you know, more like richer, less exact data types. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So basically I can see the, like the transition you made in your head from, all right, we have this like awesome document storage system that's like scales really well. And then, all right, but like, how do we search it? Yeah, actually, like there, there's another like motivational Amazon story that actually triggered it. So you know, when you have an idea, it's always somewhat difficult to backtrack and, and see like how this came about, because it'll be stuff that, you know, gestates for a while. And that's, you know, it's a neural net. So it takes a bunch of inputs. So S3 and other distributed systems, you know, my co-founder was, he was also at a database company. So like there were all of these things that we were taking into account and the knowledge that we acquired there. But, you know, the main trigger was actually for OmniSearch when so you can imagine S3 is a very techni technically complex team, as is any AWS team. Um, I can be diplomatic and say any team at a big tech company, but AWS particularly. Um, but basically what, what we then had as one of the nicer resources within Amazon is you had a ton of these like video training materials. And so these would be, you know, videos were lectures where you had these legends like the guys that that we mentioned explaining things you know drawing architecture doing deep dives um and just explaining a lot of these difficult te technical concepts in you know reasonably simple terms right and so you would have these massive archives you know hundreds of uh, of these videos that were all hour long and you know problem was you couldn't find information inside those like you could find a video, you could find something in a description, but there was no way to just, you know, consume that little snippet of information that you cared about, you know, 
jump straight to the point where it's explained, consume it, and then be on your way. So that kind of annoyed me because it, you know, this is one of the cases where the, you know, search paradigm that was predominantly just based on text kind of showed its age. Yeah, interesting. Wow. So that's a very specific use case there. And then, uh, so... So that was uh, so. So you were you were at Amazon like in 2016 to 2019. You started yeah. Omni Search uh, in 21 in March 21. So you've been doing that. For about one one years. company in between, yeah. Yeah. What was the other one? What was what was QN Technologies? It was so. It was basically like, how familiar are you with you know the tech sector in China? Not. Not at all. Okay. Fine. <laughs> so basically, what this what, what this did what what QN aimed to do as my you know um initial startup it was it was basically a news aggregator and recommender that was kind of ai powered and had like vector search and recommendations in the background um and so it is like basically it would be what the product was it was an app a news app that aggregated you know news from you know 200 different high quality sources and then it built you a custom feed that you know reacted to your clicks your behaviors your reading patterns and what kind of like it's kind of like the google news feed basically it's kind of like the google news feed yes except the the google news feed wasn't quite as integrated into everything especially on android at that point so that's where i kind of saw the opening Alas, it is now like you just swipe left and it's uh yes, right there it's, it's default, yeah i thought it was um, pretty integrated back then it wasn't not not as much. Like when did still, they uh, when did they add the swipe left feature so you could just go right into the news feed? Like so, on my previous cell phone. So this cell phone I think is like three years old. So on the previous one, I don't remember having it. It was a very specific extra app. Mm, okay, interesting. But so, like, well, why am I referring to China here? So this is this is by the way another another fun fact. The dudes that that built TikTok or whatever bought TikTok, but built the the Chinese counterpart. Um, so ByteDance, you're talking about. I'm talking talking about ByteDance. Yes. So ByteDance essentially started off with the Toqiao app, which is exactly this, right? So this was their first big hit in China. Their first, you know, massive influx of advertising dough that they could then use to subsidize the user growth for TikTok. So, you know, this was this was something that I had read up on when even while I was at Amazon and figured that I should give it a shot. So the fact that it didn't pan out didn't mean that it was not a well thought out thing. It's just that the timing was a bit off. Yeah, what's the postmortem on that one? Like how how did you how and when did you put it to bed and why? And then uh like what was like the postmortem analysis? So I mean, the the postmortem was was for me like don't don't overcommit on B two C stuff. It's still by far the the coolest thing when it comes to you know relatively seamless growth, because we all know you know the legends of Facebook and Twitter and even the the, the like Ubers and apps of this sort. But the problem is that there's there's just too much you know flaky psych- psychology as well as you know market arcana that goes into this whereas if you go b2b then you can kind of get a reasonable picture of what customers are asking for and then kind kind of tailor it a little bit more towards what they actually need and what they're actually paying for so i'm definitely a b2b guy myself i i you know I, like I, 
There's like some nowadays, magic or wizardry to like nail Nowadays, I think everyone is. I mean, it's like this Nikita Beer guy. You, you, you know those dudes, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, what was the gas the app, app or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> so, but but he basically, I think he had in the meantime, he launched like seven apps and all of them flopped. So this is just something that you know B two C is really amazing if you can. It's it's amazing if you get it right, but in my view, you probably should try not to overcommit to a single product. But when, yeah, when you hit those businesses, they can hit really big. Otherwise, you know, you, you end up just like going and going and going and going, and then it just all crashes. Um, yeah. I had and a guy so, on a, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So, so like you'll have these examples, like, you know, Clubhouse seemed like it was going to. literally just going to say Clubhouse, like, man. It's like. <laughs> So careful with B2C is my main takeaway. Um, the other thing is, well, apart from this, it was just a really good school, a really good crash course, because, you know, I got to put my algorithm skills to, to good use to, to build a real world product. I got to learn a fair bit of like design and marketing and, you know, social media and so forth. So it was actually really useful. Cool, cool. Did you do like a medium article? A lot of founders do their medium article when they uh, put their startup to bed, you know, at the the end of life. Uh, did you ever do that? Yeah, it's it's reasonably um, a, a sufficient amount of time has elapsed that the um, the the you know the pain, the anguish is no longer there. So you know, I I think I might. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Uh, the gist of it is like, dude, don't base your your business model on selling ads it almost certainly will not work unless you achieve really big scale it's tough i just uh i'm involved in another company that has a uh that that just like did an acquisition and mm. uh they um the 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 acquired asset was monetized on ads but the like the the way that the company is going to monetize that asset is through uh like a b2b sales channel not ads but like you know selling uh it's basically like a data product and uh the monetization is like 100x or like you know it's like way it's like more than 10x it's like the the traffic is like monetize it might not be 100x but it's like more than 10x for sure and it's like many it's like many tens of you know x higher than uh than monetizing through you know uh cpm cost per mile or ads basically yeah. Yeah. i can i can see that yeah if you don't have massive scale don't yeah unless you're google then do it well that, that, that's that's the massive scale part. <laughs> like even twitter isn't monetizing that well on ads well, dude, Twitter ads suck, man. Have you ever tried to use Twitter ads? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, I haven't, but I, I see what they what they throw at me, and that's pretty bad. Their ad platform is terrible, but uh, you know, like Bing? Oh, is uh, it just Bitcoin scammers there? Is there something else rather than Bitcoin scanners? Scammers? Well, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's all yeah, it's all like Bitcoin scanner, scammers, and then there's uh, weird <laughs> like consumer products that are like tchotchke like gimmicks. Are there like weird, like there are things that like no one's ever going to use, but they're just like kind of like interesting. I think that's, I think that's the thing with Twitter. Like it's no one's going to click on your ad unless it's like really interesting for some reason. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Cause like Twitter's all about like interesting bites. Like you have to hit that, like you have to like, you know, it's, I guess it's like the, you know, 
similar to tweets as such. What's that? Similar to, you know, the the, the ads in that sense are are similar to tweets themselves. Like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very attention grabbing. And we're calling it Twitter. It's it's X now. Uh, so what what do we call it when we uh like tweet? Is it called Xing now? Like, am I Xing uh on X? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very dynamic landscape. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> I mean, it is like I I don't know. Like, I feel that I'm just you know Elon Musk, and we're we're gonna get into controversial territory but let's i'm he's he's like one of the greatest founders ever in the in in tech exactly yeah i agree i get get like very nihilistic about you know the the effect then that anyone has on you know twitter as a business it's just like twitter as a business as a platform sure okay but like twitter as a business you've had jack you've had ev williams you've had costolo you've had Jack again, you've had the other dude, you have Musk. Now you have the lady from um what NBC? What um I don't remember actually. Yeah, she's a media, she's like a she she basically she she um built the like the ads revenue stream yeah. business. Like she she's she's like a she's extremely uh experienced in ad sales. Yeah. So like but but it seems to me you put any of them over there, it's going to be basically the same thing. And I know that people are going to try to spin, you know, the, the Elon thing as though it's a, it's a huge thing. And there are differences in, you know, policing speech and so on and so forth. But fundamentally, especially from a business standpoint, I don't know, like I might be proven wrong, but I, I, I just get very, um, shall we say, nihilistic in terms of who, you know, what happens to this as a business. Well, tying it back to China, you were bringing up China earlier. I think the from what I gather uh, from hearing Elon Musk talk about it, his strategy with X.com and like he brought X back from his early PayPal days, like pre-PayPal, yes. he had X.com, which yeah. was the pre, uh, pre, uh, or rather one of the one of the components of PayPal. Yeah, sure. like PayPal and, and X merged. Uh, yeah. PayPal was um, PayPal was Peter Thiel. And uh, was Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. Yeah, plus the other co-founders that I don't remember. There David was a Sachs bunch of and uh, Reed Hoffman, and there's yeah, a bunch yeah. of like you know Goliaths involved in that, the PayPal mafia, and uh, X and PayPal are like across the street from each other, somewhere in Silicon Valley, I think Palo Alto or some somewhere, and they were like right down the street from each other, and they were like both dying because they were trying to fight fraud, so they ended up merging. They're like, we can't fight fraud separately, so let's just merge and we'll fight fraud together because there's so much like payment fraud. And ultimately, they won, obviously, you know, PayPal won as a business. Uh, Elon Musk got kicked out. He eventually bought X.com back from PayPal later uh, for an undisclosed amount uh, just because they're like, what the hell? We're not using this. And uh, I think his vision for X.com now is to build WeChat, which is the everything app in China. I think that he is not the first Westerner to to play with the idea of building WeChat. I don't know. I'm skeptical of it because it just seems to me that everyone is so used to having separate apps. And also like Twitter, Twitter actually isn't something that has such a massive user base. Like Twitter's always been a bit more of an elite toy than than you know. Facebook or Instagram even, or, or, you know, any of these apps. 
So it seems to me like you don't really have a you don't really have the user base to pull that off, not not properly, because I would say like more people use Uber. I'm not sure whether whether that's the case. And so if you now try competing, because like one of the one of the things in WeChat is you've got these mini apps that basically like replicate um, any kind of functionality of, you know, what in the West would just be apps. You know, so I wonder if uh, like, you know, the Chinese government is kind of like, you know, sort of like this, like, you know, board member, let's call it like they have like essentially effectively a board seat on every tech company or every company in the country. They kind of like, you know, play the puppet minister. So I wonder if like WeChat is just like the only maybe the only reason exists. I'm just like theorizing here. I don't know. I don't have any like facts to back this up. But I wonder if WeChat only exists because it's easier to centralize all the data and track the data at, as through one pipeline, as mm-hmm. opposed to like having 20 companies all separately. It's see in China, it's always very difficult. And you know, now, now we can play a geopolitical analyst, which by the way, is a fun <laughs> past, but uh, it's, it's very difficult in China, I feel to delineate between, you know, the market forces and the, the, the CCP forces. And so my, my intuition would actually say that, you know, that the configuration that you had in the in the tech scene with you know Alibaba and Tencent and in you know a couple of these other guys being dominant that that actually arose due to market forces market forces within China because they were very good at keeping the garden walled and not allowing Western companies in but market forces within a 1.5 billion dollar market uh, 1.5 person billion person market nonetheless. So I would say that that it arose due to market conditions. The way that it's kept as it is might be the reason you're saying yes. Yeah, interesting. And WeChat in particular uh, seems to be that way. But uh, I mean, yeah, look at what happened with Alibaba with Jack Ma. I mean, he's what, hiding in Singapore now? Uh, I mean, he basically got kind of like, you know, he was put in jail or something for a while, wasn't he? That's that's undisclosed, yes. But that there was something not the unsavory it was basically because he said uh like he got so big he basically became the jeff bezos of china controlling commerce and cloud and uh and then china said you're too powerful you need to listen to us and he said no i'm going to do what i think is best for my business and for the market and they said uh okay then you know (laughs) they're like all right we're gonna knock you down then Yeah, not not the kind of place I would choose to either live or do business in. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But um, and I, you know, I have no firsthand experience on any of this stuff. Like, I'm not there. I'm not like you know. I'm just kind of like reading the uh, the takes. But uh, yeah, it's super uh, su- super wild. But uh, all right, let's uh, let let's move on here. So uh, you know, we kind of covered what you're doing at Omni Search now. Uh, what's the future of search, man? Like what? Like I, I've had a few SEO people on the show recently, and we're talking about the concept of the ten blue links, and is that going to exist in the future? And some some people are saying like, no, ten blue links is dead. We're going to be going to like interactive chat. Other people are saying, well, there's like, you know, humans are creatures of habit, and it's going to be difficult to like break the 10 blue link paradigm because it's a habit and you know people are still going to use it for a while so it's going to like there's going to be a legacy 10 blue links there's also going to be like a modern chat search feature of you know major search engines and you know so there's like conflicting 
ideologies or theories on what the future of search looks like. But what do you think, like as humans and technology, uh, you know, as technology advances and humans start to consume the latest tech products, what do you think that experience is going to be like for for people that is that is tough i think that i've kind of vacillated on the on this my, myself but um i think that the 10 10 blue links won't die it just seems to me that yes for 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 starters humans are a creature of habit but two it's a lightning fast thing like the problem with with a lot of the chats is and this might just be a technical glitch that's going to get optimized away. But the fact is that they're just not very fast. And so like, but by the time that, you know, you've typed in, typed in something and, you know, already navigated all the way to your results, you might just be looking at, you know, an LLM spewing out, um, spewing out the responses. And certain of the things like, for instance, the factuality and, you know, the hallucinations, those I think are technical issues that can be worked around. Um, I think that I, I think they they can be solved. You might have some trade-offs in terms of expressiveness, but those I think can ultimately be solved. I think it's it's more a matter of performance. Performance is meaning like the time to response, the time the time yeah, to get the answer. Yeah, I would say so. I do think that'll be solved. I mean, especially like if we get this uh, superconductor, this LK ninety uh, nine stuff working, but. Uh, I I think that'll be. I think the performance will be that. I, that I know nothing about. Do you think it's going to have repercussions on the the compute side? What do you did tell me? Did tell me in layman's terms the superconductor stuff? I mean, I'm no physicist here, man. So I'm just like regurgitating what I'm reading and hearing. Uh, but what I understand about it is that uh, like essentially like the the way that like chips, you know, CPUs, GPUs, etc., are configured today would largely be disrupted. Uh, because like, you know, right now anything, you know, anything has resistance and the, the superconductors are, uh, like no resistance. So you can have lossless energy transfer, which enables like all new levels of computation, like kind of like, I think there's like a new, it's, you know, I think there's like, I think it still works kind of like how a transistor works, but you know, it's like a, a you know, a, um, you know, generate heat or whatever. Yeah, like a, a CPU or a GPU is just like, you know, a crap ton of transistors put together in a certain configuration. And then you can have these kind of like, you know, basically you have like physics that creates lots of these binary, uh, you know, triggers like up or down. And then you that converts to like hexadecimal and then that can, converts to bits and then bits convert to bytes and then bytes are making up like everything that we interact with in a program, you know, in a low level programming stack like uh you know, like assembly or whatever. So there's like all these like stacks that you build up to build software. And this is like fundamentally disrupting like the physics bottom level of the stack. And uh, in a good way. Okay. So that that's what I understand. Skills, like, my physics skills are way too weak to to have at this point any any semblance of a competent position on it. I'll need to dive into it, but yeah, like it's it's definitely looking like a serious um breakthrough i mean if it exists i mean the, the whole thing yeah. is like the yeah. you know is it just like bullshit or is it real or uh yeah, so. they definitely did have a little bit of a <laughs> uh tussle there when it when it came to the authors like with the published paper and then the the other one without the first dude 
Yeah, it seems like it's getting politicized now, too, because I think, yeah. like, some of the labs that are saying they've reproduced it are in China. So now it's, like, politics is, you know, worked its yeah. way into, uh, you know, science somehow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. It, anyways. <laughs> oh, man. So, anyway, back to the future search. So, 10 blue links yeah. are staying. I think so. I think so. Although I will say one thing that you know that has been kind of underexplored, which is that so there's there's actually this interesting take from Dino Stratechery, Ben Thompson. I don't know. No, it's like one of the coolest newsletters slash blogs on like Who is it? The, the strategy of bigger tech companies, Stratechery. Stratechery, Ben Thompson. Oh yeah, I see it here. Uh, I think I've seen it before. I think I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen this logo before, the little pen thing. Yeah. Yeah. With the I pen don't. Exactly. Uh, so like I don't know his take when, when he was talking about like some, some of the LLM advances, it's like that it's it's less akin to something that would, you know, um, murder the current crop of search. But instead that it's something that's more closely akin to, to, to you know, um, the movie Her where you actually like in an artificial way create a new pseudo consciousness and you know this is actually something that i think has been underexplored because um i was you, you know what my second team was at aws alexa, alexa. Yes. yeah i saw that on yeah. your linkedin and so that that basically was um you had the voice assistants but that unfortunately were you know the the, the tech the intelligence just wasn't there and so you had just a lot of handcrafted rules that, you know, routed things to the appropriate handlers and so forth. But this was all like, if you've used Alexa, you, you do see that it was kind of very brute forced in some sense. And now- Yeah, I agree. The experience I, isn't like, it's not like next no, level. No, no, it's not next level. So maybe this is something where, you know, you can you can build a whole different, you know, assistant- infrastructure that people can use to simplify their da daily lives like you know bicycle of the mind and so forth as jobs said interesting interesting uh yeah i'm looking at the stratechery too this is an interesting uh we'll put this in the show notes because this looks like a good oh, newsletter good. yeah but uh yeah so i was actually talking with somebody about the concept of her uh with ai I, I don't. I don't think conscious. Like I don't think it's anywhere near consciousness. I, I mean, I. You know. I, how do you, well? How do you, how do you define it? I mean, get yeah, a, that's the that's the debate. And like eight hundred and fifty pages trying to get to the bottom of that. So, okay, the 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 author of that doesn't think that it's conscious. So, okay, I, I, I'm digging that, but it's making some very good illusions in that direction. It has the appearance, you know, chat GPT can sometimes have the appearance of consciousness because it'll answer sometimes in a way that's like, you know, yeah. it seems to have like a personality depending on how you instruct yeah. it to have a personality. Yeah. But, you know, you can, you can like change its personality just by changing the prompt. That's true. You can make it say wild things. At least you could before they, you know, put guardrails. Yeah, I mean, you still kind of can. You can still kind of like get it to do what you need it to do. But uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I mean, I think consciousness. Uh, stretch. That that's such a uh, like a philosophical discussion. But 
you know, I, 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 I don't know if tech can ever be conscious because tech, you know, it, you, consciousness largely has to do with like feelings and emotions and, you know, like feeling physical sensations, you mm -hmm. know, having like cortisol and adrenaline and, you know, having like dopamine and serotonin, like flowing through your bloodstream and, you know, having that like enter your brain and impact the way that you're computer your brain works and then you have like neurons all throughout your body that are also kind of like okay. you know supplemental to your brain and then you're feeling through those so I, I that's where it's like maybe you can like simulate something that looks like it's conscious but i don't know if i mean may, maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm totally wrong and terminator could happen but i don't know if you could ever have like a human consciousness experience through a computer interface okay, okay fine i dig but, that do you do you like do you do you have like an alternate perspective on that or not really it's just that, that it is a very complex philosophical question like it's it's certainly an emergent phenomenon but like what what exactly goes into into it as an input for it to emerge is is debatable i don't know i have no idea like i need to reread re books <laughs> <laughs> but what i will say is definitely that like with, with this level of technical capabilities you could fundamentally rethink the the like voice assistants and whatnot and just make that be so much more than they were in the first iteration. Yeah. Yeah. What does your gut tell you though? Like forget the books. The book the books don't know anything. What what does your gut tell you? About uh tech being able to simulate consciousness or be conscious? Or, or be conscious, yeah. Be conscious. Well, I mean, because the, when you have when you're talking about senses, you can <laughs> you can input stuff into it, visual senses and and auditory senses. You could. I mean, I don't see a hard reason for it not to be possible. It's just maybe it's a different kind of consciousness. Like maybe yeah. like imagine uh, like I, I, the way that I sometimes think about like different forms of life is like you know you know as humans we always like make yeah. aliens you know like this like humanoid sort of uh creature but like imagine if you know let's say like on a jupiter like gas planet where it's like high you know high uh regularity of like electricity lightning storms and it's like full of some sort of like you know hydrogen or like sulfuric gas or something and it's just like this massive condensed gas object and maybe the maybe the life form is like this jellyfish like creature. It's like a blob of jelly that like instead of breathing oxygen, it uses electricity to, to survive and consumes like the gas atmosphere, the sulfur gas atmosphere. And maybe like, you know, you ever seen that alien movie where the aliens like do the light, the blobs of ink? I forget what it's called. Uh, Arrival, I think. I think it's called Arrival. I think I've seen Arrival. But yeah, it's like the, the metal ship comes and it just sort of is like that big like spherical thing and it just sort of like floats and then the woman goes up there and they talk to her and she's like they talk to me but like i it wasn't like speaking it was something else okay i see i see what you're saying yeah yeah and uh so like it's like we can't even possibly imagine what consciousness for that jellyfish creature on this jupiter like planet would be because it's like not even mm -hmm. the same as it's not human consciousness it's whatever the hell that is so maybe uh, maybe we can build like a different form of consciousness that we're not like I'm not a human one though. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I could. See, yeah, that that's like an interesting, an interesting thought experiment. Well, let's hope we uh, we we don't find out and have it uh, spiral out of control. 
Yeah. You ever read, so there's a Wikipedia, uh, we can link to this in the show notes if uh, if my team can find it, but there's a Wikipedia for uh, like the Matrix comic uh, comic books, which is basically the story before the movie started. Mm-hmm. And they tell the whole backstory of how like the Matrix uh, happened. Oh, nice. I want to, I want to dive into this. Like, yeah. I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes. So uh, the cliff notes are that like, basically like society was somewhere sort of like where we're at now and made hu- humanoid robots and then gave the humanoid robots co- uh, consciousness. But like every couple of years, new models would come out. So the, uh, the humans would like take the old models offline and kill them basically, and then get new models. And at one point, one robot was like, well, I don't want to die. And then the human said, well, too bad. We need to upgrade you. And they're in the robots like, but yeah, I don't want to die. And then it created this huge, like, you know, robots life, uh, pro like pro-life movement, uh, or like robots, like, uh, rights. It was like a robots rights movement that happened. Uh, this is like a theoretical story in the matrix prequel, uh, the comic books or whatever. And, uh, so then a bunch of other robots realize that, that like, you know, all the robots kind of got on board with this robots rights movement and then the robots eventually revolted and sort of like this like revolution happens and and then eventually it kind of um the humans eventually said okay like they gave them this spot in the desert i think in the middle east and said all right this is your area you can like live here and exist and uh and then it kind of turned into a slum uh of robots kind of like that other alien movie i think it was like sector eight or whatever like you know district eight or whatever that that one was called where the aliens came and their, yeah. yeah their ship broke and then they had like the slum in south africa the, the alien slum it was kind of like that but for robots but then what happened was the robots were like so much faster and smarter than humans that they quickly built up the largest economy in earth with like the and they owned like the largest fortune 500 companies and they became like the largest economic powerhouse out of their slum and then they're like, you know what? We're not going to like deal with you guys anymore. And the humans got, so they started to have a war and they got threatened. Uh, the humans got threatened from the war because they were like starting to lose. So then the humans, uh, the robots at the time needed the sun, like they needed to charge from the sun. So the humans blew up bombs that blocked out the sun. Uh, so the robots wouldn't charge anymore. But then, and then the robots just decided to to use them for energy exactly then the robots started harvesting the the humans for energy so that was like the prequel to the matrix movie that sounds like something that would fit in nicely okay i get this it's an interesting dialogue it's definitely interesting like i i i now need to do to 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 look at the entire like non-clutch notes because now i'm just like getting excited about it because (laughs) i'm I'm a big matrix fan you know this, this is like one of the when i was in in you know, elementary school, you know, when I didn't have too many skills, but, you know, big dreams, it was like either Mars or that, like th- those would, those would have been the things that I would have loved to work on. You like, you like to chase big, uh, big ideas, man. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do search first. <laughs> well, um, even, 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 sir, even search is a big idea for a startup. So yes. Yeah. So yeah I mean, it, that, that's a big, uh, Mars, but... that's a bit, yeah. Search is a big one, man. That's not like, I mean, it's B2B, I guess, like the way, the way you're doing it is B2B, but, uh, it's not a small segment. No, definitely not. 
what's uh what's next for omni search are you guys like raising are you hiring uh you know what what do you what's your plans to scale and you know what, what's new for you guys and uh, now i think basically like the, the main thing is going to be hiring because we're we're going to be looking to build out both the engineering team and we want some ml experts some full stack people like we want to you know, have the right balance between, you know, doing really good R&D that kind of has the longer term benefits, but also the more tactical stuff like launching products, launching like smaller sub products, being on different platforms, you know, AWS marketplaces, whatnot. So we want to balance these things out. And then obviously salespeople. So ideally, you know, we want people that have had experience doing not just B2B, but maybe something that's search or related. Um, and, uh, yeah, like we're content with our marketing at the moment. Um, so I think that it's basically just going to be hiring for sales roles and, uh, engineering roles and, you know, like longer term, I would say like, we still have the aspiration to be a multi-billion dollar company to do an IPO and to basically become in the B2B space, at least the, the best and most significant search company that there has ever been. Nice. What's like, what's your, uh, like it's some of these B2B companies, like the go-to-market strategy is kind of like the, the, like how, how to find product market fit. And then like, when you get that right recipe, how to scale it, like that's kind of like the secret sauce and it's not super, you know, it's not like a, a one, two, you know, step one, two, three playbook. It's like very different depending on the market and the timing and all sorts of things. Uh, but like, what have you learned uh, in, in terms of like finding product market fit and where are you at in that cycle of like finding it? I would, and then... I would say we're now pretty, pretty well validated. Um, so like our, our initial two verticals were edu education. So ed tech, that's actually our, our first one where we got our initial customers. That was such a good fit for, for what we were building. So, you know, we loved it because not only was it a great fit and the value prop was really clear, but also the cool thing was that unlike a bunch of other verticals, here you had a bunch of smaller, nimbler companies. So for us, being a not very valid, very well validated startup at that point, this meant a lot because they were they were more eager to adopt us and to try us out and to give us a chance. So that that got us off the ground. Media industry is a is a huge one. So like think broadcasters, think publishers, streaming platforms, whatever. So all, all these are really good. You, you've got then also you know home security industries. Uh, you've got e-commerce even. That that's also a really good use case for us and a bunch of different ones. So you know I would say we're we're pretty well validated. We've got a lot of you know conversations going on even with big customers. I would say the main learning is like, it seems to me both like both from our experience and from, you know, just observing really successful companies that are doing deep tech stuff in kind of the B2B segment, that in the end, you will have to focus on the big deals. Like PLG is great to get you off the ground and, you know, doing self-service signups is really great, but eventually like you got to be able to sell into a, into a big business and get a 200 K. So just to interject on that, I've actually yeah. subscribed to the opposite school of thought that uh, yeah. PLG is product led growth for the listeners. So we've talked yeah. about product led growth on other episodes, but essentially product led growth is like building in features to your product that are like an onboard to your product. So mm -hmm. The user doesn't have to talk to a sales team to use your product. They can just like 
go click a button, sign up, put a credit card in, and then there's like an onboarding ramp uh, right into the product that helps them like a wizard or something or like a, a, like a step one, step two, step three onboarding that helps them get set up in, in your product ecosystem. But doing product-led growth or, or PLG too early uh, in the life cycle of a company, I think is a disservice. That's at least the school of thought I subscribe to because if you're not fully validated yet, and you start to try to do PLG, like if it's not working, what do you start to troubleshoot first? Is it like your ads aren't the right copy? Is your landing page not right? Is your PLG not right? Or is your product and your product thesis as a whole not right? Like, how do you like, where do you start to troubleshoot? So if you have, if you cut out the last two, or if you cut out the middle two, like you cut out all the, you know, the, the like the PLG and the sign up flow, the landing page flow, you just focus on getting the lead, getting the lead to a salesperson. And then the salesperson gets, and actually in an early product, the salesperson should be the CEO. So getting a lead, getting the lead to the CEO, and then the CEO getting that customer to sign up and the CEO is onboarding that customer. Uh, that's like, I think in like, early days like when the ceo the founder when it's like you know like a five person team or a two person team or whatever like that's i think the way that it needs to be done yeah uh so that you can actually get that real-time feedback from customers like oh this feature doesn't work or i hate this or i need this and that's like if you start to see a theme emerge from like one you know like for first customer second customer third customer saying the same things and it's like obvious that you need to fix that because you're talking to them and they're giving you that info but the feedback cycle might be like so much longer or not even there if you're trying to do PLG too early. Yeah. I think that that actually that actually makes sense. And at the at the end of the day, that's kind of kind of the way we did it. So we like do things that don't scale, the the YC dictum. You always got to do that in the early days. Yep. 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 Cool, man. Uh, well, this was a great episode, Marin. I'm really, I'm really happy you, uh, totally, you came no, on here. Uh, anything you want to close on? Like anything you want to plug? Uh, you know, plug, obviously we talked a lot about OmniSearch, so we'll put in the show notes. We'll put a link to OmniSearch if anybody wants to go and check it out and book a demo. Uh, anything else you got going on? You want to plug here before we hop off? Yeah, no, totally. You know, very. Uh, we're hiring for a large variety of roles. So if anyone's interested, definitely shoot me a, I don't know, LinkedIn connection. I'm very, I, I check that all the time. I'm on Twitter too. So, you know, anyone who wants to, who wants to reach out and connect, either, even if it's just other startup founders looking to exchange ideas, always happy to do that. Good deal. That's the episode. Yeah.